So there's a misconception that if you're single, you are incomplete, perhaps damaged, salvaged, and you won't be happy until you find your one. And that is not true. That is bullshit. It is a message that has been fed to us by media and advertising. The truth is, when you're single, you have the richest soil for growth. That's why I created this podcast. And unlike other podcasts, this one is host-driven, not guest-driven. That means I will be rotating health and wellness experts three times a week to give you the giant box of wellness crayons, not just the primary colors, so you can start building a meaningful life. It's time to give singlehood a cape. So today's host, Lindsay Burke, she and I go way back, back when I was working in addiction, residential, Malibu, driving my little motorcycle on PCH to help people with addiction, and she was on my team. I'm so happy that she is a part of this rotating host and experts for this podcast. Lindsay Burke is the founder of Lift Therapy, and she's a licensed therapist, behavior interventionist coach, martial artist, yes, martial artist, a wife, a parent, and expert consultant on attachment, narcissism, and toxic relationships, as well as early childhood development. Yes, she does everything. And she believes that human connection is the best medicine and is committed to helping people heal by helping them develop healthy attachments with others. Her mission is to enhance the field of mental health by making support and resources more accessible to you in the form of psychoeducation, supportive programming, and individual therapy. Lindsay has served as a host for the Disney Plus show Reconnect and as an advisor and expert writer for various newspapers, podcasts, and radio shows such as the Chicago Tribune, Relation Up, P-Therapy, Life and Style Magazine, Pop Sugar, and on and on and on. She is very talented. She's a powerful catalyst, and I hope you enjoy well, I know you're going to enjoy and get so much out of her episode today. Hey, all, Lindsay Burke here. And today I have Candace St. John with us. I am so excited to have her on our episode today. She is an epidemiologist and a public health specialist with additional training in pediatric sleep and lactation support. She's a researcher and a mom who helps parents cut through the noise and encourages parents to really use evidence-based empirical studies, um, aka science, <laughs> when they are trying to make informed decisions on their parent, uh, their parenting and in combination with their own intuition to inform their parenting decisions. And so thank you, Candace, so much for being on our show today. Oh, my gosh, of course. Thank you for having me. It's, it's, you know, I'm always honored when people think to invite me to chat. And I love talking about all of these parenting topics, because I think there's such a disconnect uh, between what the data say, some nuance from people who understand how to, you know, interpret the data and, you know, parents, you know, getting the information. So, yeah, with happy Google. To, happy to I chat. mean, years ago, there were like a few <laughs> select books that were out there that people could right. refer to that were really kind of the main sources of information. Now we have, I feel like parents are almost overwhelmed with information. Yes. And then there's a lot of money and a lot of misinformation out there that can easily be adopted. It sounds mm -hmm. good, but it's really not based in science. And so I'm just so grateful for the work that you do because you help people tease that out and really look at who's studying, um, you know, the, the, and, and really, really researching and, and using scientific methods and, and, and understanding deeper rooted issues, um, to, mm -hmm. to inform parents on how to make their decisions. And as a mom, especially when your heart's in it and you, you know, this impacts you, I, I, mm -hmm. I've shared with you before and, um, we'll share again that there are so many things that I was a part of, you know, where I'm realizing in hindsight, I was a part of the problem because I was buying into a lot of this information, information without doing my own research. And then as I started to become more informed, I thought, oh, I've been telling parents these things all these years. So I'm just yeah. so grateful uh, for you being here. But first of all, let's clarify, because this yeah. is a big word. <laughs> for those of you who are new to this term, what is an epidemiologist? What does that even mean? What do you do? <laughs> so, so epidemiology, if you know, I'm sure some of you have heard of it since there's been a whole pandemic going on or a couple now. Um, but basically, it is just this. 
it's the study of diseases is at its most basic mm. term or term <laughs> form. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's uh, it's it's basically you know epidemiologists are people who study a population. Um, we want to know what the burden of disease is and what the effects are, right? So what I did, uh, so currently, right right now, I'm not even going to diminish it. I'm rocking the stay-at-home mom role right now. Um, it's not without also, you know, sure. doing other things because I can't like sure. just just be one thing, of course. Sure. I have to just well, keep like I just take, sat for my. <laughs> you can't take the therapist out of the mom. You're like, you can't take right, the therapist right. out of me. Like it's in there. It's in right. brain now and everything. I always say that about martial arts. I'm, a, I'm, I'm forever a martial artist in my heart, right. my mind, my meanness. It's the epidemiologist in you. It's, right. You can't unthink once you know certain things. You can't unthink. Right. Yes. In that <laughs> so, kind of way. so that's what I did for five and a half years before I, um, I, I'll be frank, I got a little teeny tiny bit burnt out, you know, being a, juggling being a, I was still a full time stay at home mom, but also full time worker because you know, as a lot of us experienced the pandemic craziness, because I have a yes. June 2020 baby. Um, but oh yeah, so God. what I did was I was in a rural New Hampshire hospital. Um, I had a million hats that I wore, I was a, a team of one. <laughs> So I worked with the hospital, like, wow. you know, tracking some of the chronic disease burdens that we had in our community. Um, obviously, I was a part of the pandemic response for COVID-19. I had to develop the um, tracking systems. Very wow. pregnant. <laughs> um, but I also I was imagine. really deeply involved in community health um, initiatives. That was like the actual department I worked under. And I, you know, helped um, co-create programs in the community with different organizations um, you know, we had like formal uh, data collection evaluation plans. Um, I also helped to um, provide best practice community health improvement uh, strategies to sure. uh, our community members as well as New Hampshire at large. So it was a really interesting role. <laughs> but as you can say, as you can see, it got a little chaotic once a baby came into the mix when I didn't have access to childcare at the time. And I also will be 100% frank. I was struggling very much so with postpartum depression and anxiety, and it really lingered. It, I, I couldn't actually recover from it until after I left my um, job. So I was suffering okay. and struggling for about two years, which um, oh. is is hard to really face. But you know, coupled with you know, I I had um, I you know that on top too. of I think that's, we don't talk right, about and, enough. I I did, and I think yeah. I had all the tools. I was yeah. prepared for it. I knew a lot about it. I'd, I'd worked with other women, but then you just, you can't address it. I appreciate you sharing that because. Yeah, it, it's hard to do it. Think, it, it you, you can't do it alone, right? Like parenting, you, know. you can't do alone. You can't, you, you can't um, just, you know, necessarily get over something, right? It's not something to just get over. It's, it's, you know, we're encumbered with systemic issues that create or exacerbate these problems that many of us are facing it's already physiological um, it's already so physiological yeah, and then yeah. if you don't have the support and the tools and the resources and the things to mm -hmm. feed you to help you recover and then mm -hmm. already be having so much being pulled from you and i can't even imagine working full yeah, so, job with a new baby so, <laughs> so that's what i did um and i loved it i really did i'm just i'm really it took me a while to be at peace with the decision to step away from the workforce for a little bit. But, you know, I'm hoping that when I'm ready, I can hop back in more, you know, I, you know, feel pretty recharged already. And, um, you know, hopefully we can get some more childcare soon because I do have great things um, that I'm hoping to, um, to help out with Absolutely. in the field of public health and parenting as we'll kind of chat about today um, because I'm really and passionate about, you know, really, pushed you towards this passion of recognizing this is a problem around, you know, what we're talking about today, which is more about the parenting and about the early, you know, the early stages of development mm -hmm. and the relationship between the mom and that postnatal period. Was it your personal experience that was kind of your first hands-on yeah. kind of t being touched by that um, problem? or epidemic or, you know, however you would describe it? I'd say yes. And because, um, something I've been on a couple of podcasts and I'm pretty sure, and even on my, um, my small Instagram following page, I, um, 
I am pretty frank and open about my own my own uh, childhood experiences and how they shape me as a person. Um, so I'm not I'm not unfamiliar with at least the negative sides of parenting. Um, and that's something that I've always, I think that's why I gravitated toward a helper field. In my undergrad experience, I uh, went to um, school for psychology. Um, and then after a couple of years working, I decided to get my master's um, in public health and other helper type field, right? Um, because I believe that we can make big changes, you know, on a big scale and um, help many people avoid some of the hardships that I experienced. Um, and I will say that after becoming a parent, it was more in my face than ever before, um, or, or probably since I was a child. Um, because, wow, like having to manage the triggers, it's not just um, reflecting on experiences that you have had, it's literally facing them um, when your child is having a really challenging behavior and it brings you back to your literal um you know your physiological coding if you will because even when you were pre-verbal you were getting a lot of messages from your own parenting experiences and um it might be hard for us to even understand why it is we're so angry with you know or whatever it might be you know upset sad shamed whatever shame you know whatever the Avoidance, emotion is that comes up yeah um yeah so it you know i know it for me it was the crying at first i couldn't understand why it was like so much for me um and of course everybody is supposed to have a reaction to your child crying that's what we are um you know biologically physio physiologically once you become a parent regardless of your the birthing parent or not you have changes you have yeah. you go through substantial changes and your brain chemistry changes to be able to attune yeah. to your child and um yeah i think that it's it's it can be absolutely heightened and intensive you know in this not necessarily a good way sometimes <laughs> when you yes. had negative um, or adverse childhood experiences um yourself so that's why uh you know i really became much more interested, even though I had been doing some work in that in my previous role as an epidemiologist. Um, so, yeah, I relate to that so much. <laughs> and I think a lot of parents do. You, we get triggered by partners or by friendships or by employers mm -hmm. or, you know, we have these experiences. And then when you have a child and you're in it and it's it's like its own Petri dish of this. It right. Can get, it can be managed or it can be it can get out of control. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's just, there's something that gets amplified. Oh, like I, there's mm -hmm. just, that's an, I feel like that's an understatement. I, I wish there was a word that described how amplified whatever right. trauma you have and um, how it, how that just becomes so powerful if it's not addressed um, once mm -hmm. you become a parent. So, yeah, so that, that really kind of moved you into this mindset of wanting to, uh, focus a little bit in, in your Instagram and a lot of the the teachings that you do are around mm -hmm. this these early stages because yeah. of how how big of a deal you found that it was. Absolutely. So I was actually so what really propelled me into this space was um, so that plus um, I had been managing for the first couple of months. I knew it was tough, mm -hmm. um, and I did notice I had some triggers, but I was managing okay. But it wasn't until somebody mentioned, why don't you put your baby down? Why don't you put him down? Why are you always holding him when he's sleeping? And I started getting anxious because I had work coming up. And I knew at that point, like I was in that, I was going to be in it. Like I was not going to be getting help. Um, you know, it was August of 2020 when I was going to go back to work, back to work <laughs> upstairs in my office <laughs> or slash well, my child's bedroom. Child. <laughs> yes. Um that's when I started getting sucked into like the whole sleep training stuff because I, you know, I was getting great advice from folks that I trusted, um, yeah. from, you know, colleagues, coworkers, friends, you know, saying this is what they did. So I, you know, and I respect them and I don't, I still do. <laughs> and, um, sure. you know, this is what, you know, people pass on and tell people to do. Here, so I'm that's when I started problem. to get 
extra triggered. Like I, cause then I was like, what the hell is going on here? My kid sucks. <laughs> I literally was thinking that I was like, my kid is broken. He, he doesn't do what everyone's saying he's supposed to do. I'm trying everything. You know, I bought the programs that are saying like, do this, yes. that, and the other, I get to the troubleshooting part. And they're like, well, you're just not trying hard enough. And I was like, this can't be right. So I started to look into the research. Like, I was like, what are the freaking sources of this crap? Like, what is yes. this? Because when you go online, one thing that you'll notice is there's not a lot of um, citations. Even if you go to like, um, like uh, health center, uh, like web pages where you're supposed to be yes. uh, acquiring, you know, like, oh, this is um, reliable information because it's, you know, I'm just, I'm just saying a, a random system, but like Mayo Clinic, right? Like we all yes. know that's like a, a, a health system you can trust. Um, and then you look and there's not even citations. So it's just almost like folklore being passed down from generation to generation, to be quite frank. And I hate to say it like that, but it I is. I'm so grateful you are saying that because that's what my experience was too. Yeah. So I started to say, what the hell? Why? Why? So then I began looking at research myself and I did stumble upon other folks like Lindsay Hookway and um, there's Greer. I cannot remember her first one. Anyway, there's a couple of individuals and, you know, Hey Sleepy Baby online. And I was like, wow, there are people that are starting to look at things differently and start to question, why do we do the things that we do? And when I looked at the data and the research, like, there weren't a lot of things to really solidly support the way in which we nurture our children at night um, or during sleep times. Um, and then you look at the data and research regarding sleep itself, and it didn't really all add up to me. Uh, I'm like, okay, so we have this information about child development. We know that they're very, very immature nervous systems, do not have the capacity, like honestly, even the autonomic nervous system for babies is regulated by us like just being yes. close to us never mind you know the um oh my gosh what's the other there's the autonomic functioning their ability yeah right to, yes the all side? of these things um, that play right. into being able to manage their emotions and to regulate their sleep right 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 like our central nervous system and the parasympathetic, yes. sympathetic. So, and I'm, you're looking and you're like, okay, you need the parasympathetic uh, nervous system to be able to sleep, rest, digest, right? Not, we don't want to be in fight, flight, or, you know, freeze, fawn, whatever. Um, why, you know, we know that children, especially, you know, babies under 12 months old, like require co-regulation. We even know kids under like five need co-regulation in order to help them manage their emotions. They don't know how, they don't have higher level executive functioning to be able to say, oh, this is, not dangerous. We are safe. Yes. You can use those like different techniques to come. Okay, we're going to take deep breaths. These are all things that I can tell myself. You, you can... get your amygdala to calm down, right? <laughs> you you turn right. off your little survival mechanism and say, okay, you're safe. But I'm like, my baby needs literally everything from me besides like yes. breathing at this point. You know, I have to change his diaper. I have to feed him. He can't move. <laughs> Like, why do I expect him to why have? Do I expect these things? Well, and I read, I was right. going to say, one thing that you had written was in the United States, we have pathologized typical infant behavior. Yes. And much of the parenting advice is based on research with heavy limitations. So most mm -hmm. of it relies on behavior modification of an infant or a child instead of shifting focus on parental healing and typical infant development. There are these unreasonable societal expectations of children. Yeah. And I, I think you're touching on that. I mean, can you name yeah. some more of these examples Oof. that you started to really find around early childhood behavior that is typical that we've misunderstood about what we should expect of babies and infants? Yeah. I mean, I think I just, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think I kind of briefly touched upon some of these things, but you know, with, in terms of behavior, like I think that a lot of us assume they are a lot more developed than they are. They don't have impulse control. I mean, as as you know, um, it's what upwards to age 25 before we truly like have integrated all of that um, into wow. uh, you know our you know yeah. our brains can handle <laughs> all of that. We don't have I, a fully functioning prefrontal cortex until we're right around and 25 years old. Which and is, then you think about that. <laughs> you think, 
from a scientific perspective, the responsibilities that we place on these young adults even. Right. Yes. And then here we're looking at babies expecting things that, you know, my friend can't do. (laughs) Right. And that's the other thing is like another reason why I'm like really into the whole adverse childhood experiences element. Um, Not that I'm trying to make your brain about that in a minute. (laughs) Yeah. Not that I'm, I don't want to go too far into the weeds, but, and I'm, Absolutely, I'm not here to say that like sleep training is an adverse childhood experience. It could be maybe for some babies, yes. but I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that, um, you know, because of like adverse childhood experiences, things that we we know is like we have like stunted development, right? You're you're you can be stunted. Not it's not a rule, um, but it can stunt in our emotional kind of um, development, right? It, 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 as well as so many other um, actual. Uh, health outcome or social indicators in life. Um, so it's just very interesting that, you know, again, like fully grown adults can be walking around like even beyond 25 and you're not technically like, even able to control your impulses because you weren't able to um, learn any skills in order to cope with that. So um, again, well, it's just like one of those things I find regulation. so silly. We expect babies to do it. You know? <laughs> and, and tell us, you know, t- Tell us a little more about that idea of stunting. How is that happening during these early infancy stages? You were talking about co-regulating, but I don't think that's a common term for a lot of people. That's, that's something really... that therapists are starting to talk more right, about. Right, right. But what does that even what does that even mean for parents? And how do things like sleep training or some of the different types of parenting techniques that are trying to encourage independence, how does that impact that from your experience now and your research? Um, so I guess in its most basic sense, co-regulation would just be allowing, um, basically, uh, lending our nervous systems to our children (laughs) because we are the mature brain. We have the mature, you know, nervous system here and you are able to model these behaviors, you know, how to, you know, be calm yourself, right? With your breathing, with our heart rate. Um, you know, this is on the most basic level with babies. They, you know, they cry and, you know, we meet a need. So that helps them understand they're safe in the world. They're understood, um, you know, because you're, you feed, maybe feed them or you change them because they were uncomfortable. Or maybe you like see that they had, um, their clothes were a little too tight or itchy or something, you know, you're meeting these, these needs and it's, showing like, okay, like you are not alone in the world. You are safe. You are heard. And we are going to get through it together. And I think even as adults, we, a lot of us like that, right? (laughs) Or would ideally like that. Even if some folks think that we need a little bit more space, Uh, not that space is bad, but um, I think that a lot of it is like a learned behavior of you weren't taught how to co-regulate with other human beings because you were um, you know, often left to deal with things on your own. And that can be really scary for, you know, babies, because for a baby, um, again, they don't really have language, nothing. So they are, what we believe is we believe that they might, um, you know, feel that they're not having their needs met, right? Um, and it's most basic, you know, set the, you know, the most basic level here is, you know, they have communication, they cry. That's the only way they can communicate. Um, you know, obviously there's other like nonverbal cues, but that's how they're trying to let us know that they need something. And um, it's a caregiver's role to be able to step in and try to, you know, help them feel at ease. So I guess that ended up being very, very that, long-winded. Um, do you have anything to well, add? Because I know that you are me... very much so an expert well, in that. that. Well, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm learning too. I'm still growing in that area. But you know, it, what you just saying that just made me think about the idea of adult cognitive dissonance and this idea mm-hmm. of people even being aware of the discomfort in themselves or aware of their own problems, this blind mm-hmm. spot they even have to how they're self-sabotaging in certain ways or how they are contributing to their own problems or how they're not seeking help or how they even have a problem. You know, I, I, I just 
Mm -hmm. I had an interview with someone talking about the idea of shame and how many of us aren't even aware that we're living in this kind of deeply um, depressive shame state. All we know is we feel crappy and we don't want to live anymore. You know, that's where suicidality Mm -hmm. comes from and some of this Mm -hmm. depression comes Mm -hmm. from um, because you're not even aware of the shame and where it's come from. Because when it's so deeply rooted, I think about an infant not getting their needs met, how... I don't know if this happens or maybe you can you can talk on this, but the idea that an infant saying, I'm uncomfortable in my diaper, you know, like all they know is pain and pleasure right. <laughs> to a certain degree. Like the, right. the experience exactly. is very simple is I feel safe when I'm held. I know that I'm not alone because they literally can't rely on themselves to protect themselves. So I know that I won't be eaten. You know, well, they're not thinking this, by, but there's the biological aspect of I'm not going to be eaten by a wild animal when I'm with something that's strong and can hold me and protect me. I will get my right. needs met. I, I will be fed if I'm near this person and I'm uncomfortable right. in my diaper. When I cry, they respond to me. So if I'm uncomfortable in my diaper and no one responds to me, there has to be a way of coping, coping with that lack of responsiveness, which... I can only imagine contributes to this idea of cognitive dissonance that I can't trust my own feedback system. I can't trust that I am responding accurately to my own needs even. And so it just, it hit me that it's not that I, I not only can't trust other people to respond to my needs, can I even read my own needs accurately, which just, it's the first time that that layer just got added. I really love that you mentioned that because that's something that I, you know, with other uh, colleagues who do some of this work have talked about because it's, I think that this, this style of parenting and especially um, nighttime nurturing or lack thereof um, on a societal level has been around for quite a while. Um, I believe it's at least since the fifties, Spock, uh, Dr. Spock um, was really big on that. And there's a few other, um, physicians who um some were child children yeah either didn't raise their own children or some of them even child um free um interesting that they're experts you know (laughs) on that but um but yeah I I think that sometimes we have to take a step back and think about like okay what were the orange origins of this like is it based on our like what we have ideals for in society uh versus what is best for a family unit. Um, and I like to emphasize that because I often get um, fingers pointed at me that I don't care about parents, but I do. I trust me, I do care about parents. I care about everyone in the in the in the family unit because that's um, everybody's well-being is crucial to um, you know overall health for yes. your lifetime. Um, yes. You know, and within your own family. family and the extended family to have healthy children. So yes, it's right. Yeah. So, and I think it's really interesting because if you look at our society and you look at, we have a huge burden of mental health crises. We have um, a lot of um, other issues systemically. When you think about um, healthcare, you think about education, you think about, um, you know, some of the race and equity thing, um, you know, atrocities basically occurring. And, you know, as a society, like there's, it's like, it's a way in which we've all been created to be, right? I mean, it's not like this is how human beings are, because if you look to other societies, mm-hmm. other other folks have different ways of being, right? And yet it's a uni- it's uniquely starting, American it's experience. It's starting very early. Yeah, it's of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you need to figure it out on your own. And how are these, these, um, you know, uniquely American kind of ideals and you know you have to figure out on your own like you know no handouts whatever (laughs) um you know you have to rely on yourself you should be self-sufficient things like that um how is that trickling into our parenting and it does I think it really does because we have to get back to work we have you know we don't have um you know we have nuclear families generally um where it's just you know uh two partners and like their immediate children that they have um, it's not like you have any extra help right there all the time, you know, cooking and cleaning and caregiving alongside you like humans for most of human history. Like we humans have been yes. around for a very long time. It's just in the past, like 100, 200 years, maybe <laughs> that we've had yes. this drastic shift. Like, so and I'm trying to tie it back to something that you mentioned when babies yes. are born, they're born 
like with they they're not blank slates they have a rich history from our human existence and they're expecting you know you know to have their needs met by their caregivers whoever those caregivers are and they're and because you're right like they cry and they don't want to be crying because they they could get be in true danger like you know some animal could come get them they don't know that it's not like that anymore <laughs> so they are still living you know operating under that condition of like it is danger if i'm alone um i require this you know being in order to um to exist and you know that's besides the fact that you know they actually truly need to be feeding all the time which you know we don't have any supports for in our society which you know leads people to do behaviorist techniques because how the heck are we going to manage juggle it all right um yeah. you address, look at but, cultures that are yeah. still a little more collectivistic and you look at these cultures where the babies are attached to their moms 24 7 they're they're wrapped they're yeah they're, they're tied to them <laughs> and if right. it's not mom they've got aunts and uncles and grandmas and generations right. of people who've been in that baby's life from the very beginning so there are these surrogates right surrogate caregivers to help support that unit because that uh-huh. baby i mean we're like one of the only species that's born so vulnerably uh, in mm-hmm. such a vulnerable state right i mean it just that's and that's a great um thing to bring up in terms of uh you know cognitive development because in order for like a baby deer to get up and start running like they have to have a lot more going on up there <laughs> in order to have the the um you know functions to be able to you know send the uh, the messages to their muscles to be able to make them move so you know that's just just looking at things on the most basic um, level there I mean and, and even like like something like a deer again um, they can they can uh, they have different milk that they're fed so they're given far more nutrient-dense milk that's why their parents can go you know trot around and look for berries and forage for whatever they need um, and the and the baby will sit there quietly in their little nest um, and, you know, that's just a different species, right? But humans, we're not like that. We're supposed to be right there with them because we're born, um, just little raisins. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're not walking for a year. They're not walking <laughs> yeah, for a year. Exactly. <laughs> uh, or longer. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, 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 um, it's really incredible. Um, and I feel like I went on a crazy tangent here, but it's, it it just really does speak to the unreasonable. Yeah, it does. It speaks to the unreasonable expectations of our society. And, you know, just because we mentioned there's collectivist cultures that exist to this day and, you know, feed their babies every two and a half minutes. um, I'm not like, I don't think anyone is saying like that is the way we need to be. We can be modern. We can, um, you know, uh, advance as societies, if you will. and why can't we do that alongside honoring families and being able and to biology. provide everyone not with that biology has can shift that the right and its needs haven't shifted right right like why why not um lead with compassion and nurture um for our society it doesn't have to just be for families i would love to see everybody taken care of i deeply deeply believe that um the inequities that we are facing today um are just completely wrong it's just and there's not it's not as if there are no ways that we can rectify these issues it's just that there's a lot of political garbage keeping people from doing the right thing and um it's just sad it's just really sad because we should be able to have you know mental health supports and be able to go to the hospital and not be bankrupt for the rest of our life um, well, or deliver a baby and like not you're leading be able me to, to my that. next question. <laughs> I mean, that's yes, you're leading me to my next questions because when we're talking about okay, if we were to be very honest about what the neuroscience is saying about how vulnerable our babies really are and how this mm-hmm. idea of them being independent so early isn't really helpful, this idea of not being extremely responsive and nurturing to mm-hmm. them early on. And when I say early on, not the first few months, for the first few years of their life. Mm-hmm. So when we really acknowledge what they're needing and what our society keeps pushing us to 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 do for our young children under two, under three, um, around breastfeeding and around closeness and in responsiveness, the next conversation is just what you're saying is, 
okay, now how do we support the people who are supposed to provide that to them, which is parents, (laughs) you know, how mothers first and foremost, and then the fathers, how they contribute Mm -hmm. And then the whole community around them, whether that be immediate family members or extended relatives, friends, um, Mm -hmm. the village, the healthcare system, the the doctors, the, you know, um, you know, what, what has happened in our society to, um, and what, what are they really needing? How do we, how do we, you know, what kind of support are these caregivers needing in order to Ooh. provide that level of responsiveness that our, our babies really need? So what needs that to is, there? Whew, that is, it's a, that's <laughs> a, a huge question. question. It <laughs> is, but I think it's one that we all need to sit down and really think about because we can look to other societies who appear to have it more right than how we have it in the United States. You know, you look at some of the, um, like yeah, who countries like Sweden yeah like 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 over i mean basically every other you know uh industrialized nation i suppose um right uh has some sort of parental leave some have for both um uh, maternal and uh, paternal uh leave uh i know folks uh over in like i believe it's sweden they have like a couple years off and then it's a slow integration back into the workplace. So they're just like uh, part-time for a little while and then they get to, you know, go back to full-time and they don't see it as, um, you know, a negative impact. They, they understand the huge importance of um, child rearing and ensuring that children have like secure bases, secure attachments and, um, you know, get all the support that they need. Um, while ensuring that the family can exist, is <laughs> getting paid uh, to, you know, feed themselves and even hell go on vacation. Like there are some countries that literally give vacation, like as a country, wow. give vacation, like money <laughs> and, you know, yes. and, and have um, in their law, like, you know, paid time off is required. Like we don't have anything supporting uh, or protecting um people in this in this nation country and organizations and the government are are recognizing the value of kind of paying for it on the front end i'm an employer right and so i i understand how hard it is to pay for employees and how to support employees during their time off and the coverage for them and the expenses of that i'm not naive of the idea that you know the employees just want handouts and, you know, coming from yeah. that, that from an employee standpoint, that's still a burden on the front end. But what you're saying right. is some of these countries are starting to recognize that the mm-hmm. payout have. on the back end is longevity um, right. with employees being able to stay with them for much longer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that there's, there, that there are some benefits that they're recognizing. Right. And there's just like, you know, uh, more, uh, you know, kind of, well-adjusted society, if you will. Um, you know, they're okay. raising kids who are going to be um, good contributions to the economy later. Um, whereas, you know, there are a lot of issues, you know, we have like, uh, you know, really vast amounts of like poverty and, and um, you know, it's hard to get ahead when you're like, I, I, you know, how we look at, um, you know, compensation in this country is, you know, we like have hierarchy of roles when it's like, why shouldn't someone who cleans toilets or whatever it is, be paid a dignified wage? Like, why can't they have stable housing? Like, why can't they afford to feed themselves? Why can't they have health care? Like, we just have to like totally reconsider how we um, basically treat other human beings in this country. Um, so that's like another whole layer. Um, but then there's, you know, there are so many things, you know, having healthcare coverage would um, alleviate a huge burden. That's a huge um, stressor in financial stressor in, in the United States. Um, plus, you know, because of things like adverse childhood experiences that lead to poor health outcomes, <laughs> like, you know, um, yes. that increase uh, substance use disorder, um, you know, alcoholism, you know, hypertension, Gosh. depression, all sorts of things. It, 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 you know, it's not just adverse childhood experiences. There's also like environmental injustices and all of that. There's so many layers. But again, it goes back yes. to this individualistic of 
society that, you know, it's uh, when a company opens up, they're just doing whatever they want because they they want to make the money. And we don't have a ton of checks to keep, um, you know, making sure they're paying and treating their workers well. We don't have a ton of um, supports for, for the community in which they then like build into, right? Or, you know, establish their, their business. And it could be wreaking havoc in a million different ways. Um, so yeah, it's like, it's the fabric I feel like of our society it can be quite it's a little Wrong. backwards. So it's, it's like, you yeah, know, you get what you pay for. So it's the idea that yeah. the structure of this individualistic mindset is actually yeah. something that we're paying for on the back end with extreme poverty, right. with mental illness that's hitting right. people in their thirties, forties, fifties, and they're no longer able to contribute or support themselves, which right. leads to homelessness, which leads to more people needing social services. Like, so it, more people right. having, um, mental health issues and being and more people just right and just like presenting to the emergency department as opposed to like getting preventative care because they didn't have insurance or money to be able to do that you know take care of themselves in the front end because that's not how our society is and then you know they don't have insurance they're not paying for it who's paying for it it's the people who are still working so you know folks want to keep complaining about <laughs> uh, you know taxing um, you know taxing folks for things like social programs um but it's not like the money just comes out of nowhere it still comes out of your pocket if, if you're like the right. person that is you know working so why not pay on the front end to prevent these issues <laughs> and it will be far less money and and you get something out of it like a lot of the times Which we don't get much out of it here you know comes yes and, and it's, <laughs> well, again you're getting the cheap you know, crisis response at the end, right. as opposed to right. the really deeply rooted preventative stuff, which again, right. it's much easier to man. And I think we're talking about parenting 101, which yeah. is, you know, if you manage, if you, if you develop the skills and manage the behaviors at the beginning, it's much easier to deal with a two-year-old's tantrum than a 45-year-old's right. tantrum. I, I worked for years with a lot of those failure to launch kids right. and now in their 40s, 50s, 60s, dealing with all this mental health stuff, a mm -hmm. lot of behaviors that are not conducive with being contributing citizens. And now their parents mm -hmm. are in their 80s, 90s, mm -hmm. they're passing away, they're no longer too able to bail their kids out and support mm -hmm. their kids. And now their kids have no one. And mm. this is where, yes, you're just naming the big problems. So the root of it, what I love is that you are able to speak a little bit on how some countries have caught this, realized this, and mm -hmm. they're making this shift and realizing we've got to put a lot more attention, money, funding into families again, into yeah. how we raise our children. We've got to start doing things differently on the preventative side um, yeah. and really start to understand who are these children are, are adults that we're raising. Um, mm -hmm. These early choices we make and these early things that we invest in are going to pay for themselves in 20, 30 years or, or damage us in 20, 30 years, um, mm -hmm. 40 years, 50 years. So that's, mm -hmm. I think that's so big. Well, and you know what, kind of going back to, there are two things you talk about, which is yeah. the adverse child um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. information. I want to ask you about that in a second, but before we get into that, which I think will help speak to the ACEs, um, you speak a lot about survivor bias and mm -hmm. um, why people are still resistant to some of these ideas of shifting our focus and shifting our ideology away from some of these things that short-term when we're struggling, <laughs> we do want to, you know, we do lean on or has mm -hmm. been normalized in our society. Tell me a little bit about kind of what survivor bias is and how it kind of plays into yeah. this conversation. So um, I've recently talked about sur survivorship bias here or survivor bias, um, pretty much interchangeable. Um, so that and uh, the definition for that is it's, it's a basically a cognitive error that we make when we're only considering like successful observations without considering those that didn't succeed. So a lot of times this actually, um, you see it in like business. So like you'll see, a, you know, in an MBA program, they're like, oh, look at, uh, you know, Steve Jobs, how successful he was. Um, when you don't see that he had failed a ton of times before, and you don't also see all the other people who tried to make phones before him, um, which is the majority who had failed, and you're just, you know, raising all that one thing to a pedestal. <laughs> yeah. Right. So um, I think 
so when I talk about this, uh, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. So one of the other things I'm passionate about in this whole parenting space, um, because I felt a little duped by the sleep training and how I felt like it is one of those things that is uh, over hyped, I, I suppose, um, in terms of its you know success and the necessity of it at all. Um, as I am a public health professional, I, um, you know, looked into things such as, you know, I, I don't believe it's sleep training or bed sharing, but I do believe, um, I, I think there's things you can do, you know, in, in between there. Um, but I do believe that if you are having a lot of struggles because your child is extremely high needs, um, they're, you know, really sensitive, uh, which is the child that I had, we need to be teaching parents uh, about how to more safely, I'm not saying it's safe, I'm saying more safely bed share, because um, quite frankly, it is extremely dangerous um, when we're falling asleep, like sitting on a couch and on like a, a rocking chair or something trying to stay awake, because everything that we hear in the United States is abstinence only education on bed sharing. Um, it's, you know, it's the worst thing that you could do, and you're going to kill your baby. So um, I did, I, I, I started talking about survivorship bias, because um, when you really look at the data, um, yes, um, there are some increased risks uh, for your infant if you choose to bed share. Um, and what a lot of times that we see in the United States is there is um, folks that kind of point fingers saying, oh, that's survivorship bias. If you do bed share it, it's successful because you see that it can be risky. Um, but something that we've noticed is um, if you look at other countries around the world, every, you know, the UK, Australia, Canada, uh, Spain, France, they all have policies on how to more safely bed share because they understand human nature. And quite frankly, that's how humans have always slept with their babies. And if you go to somewhere, other places like India, you go to any other um a no country question. that doesn't yeah it just they're like what are you talking about that's just sleeping you know them sleeping alongside their infant is just sleeping you know that's indigenous americans my eyes people right. think we're crazy actually for even putting yeah. our children in cribs or in separate sleep surfaces because right they're like what are you doing yeah, yeah. and that's something that has come up out of um again if you look at society it, it there uh some believe that it came out of um germ theory where they started separating people because people we always just sleep like all together <laughs> in big rooms yeah. like families would yeah. all just sleep together in a room and um you know the whole idea of you know people spread germs so they started starting having people sleep separately um so that's kind of like where some of this stuff uh began but um Going and back to the whole survivorship. About, like, the industrial area as well. Yes. Just the idea yeah. of having separate caregivers or the idea of women having to go back into the workplace. Yeah. And so this idea of women needing more sleep so that they could function yeah. during the day. So that meant mm -hmm. we're putting the baby somewhere else. So that, yeah, mm -hmm. there's so many different contributions to this ideology. But it's all recent. Separating. It's all it's very recent. In the last 100 years, 100, 200 years. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. so my mentioning of the survivorship bias is the fact that a lot of folks, especially in med medicine in the United States, will say, you know, oh, you know, we shouldn't be teaching people that because it's survivorship bias when bed sharing works out. Um, however, a lot of the data are quite flawed and they even um, lump things really, I feel like intentionally bad <laughs> in the United States to make it look worse than it is because they'll call all same surface fatalities um, like a loss due to bed sharing. So that would be like you're sleeping on a waterbed or again, you're sleeping on the couch or like a chair or something that we know is um, like nuance. that would, that is, if you know, very, very dangerous, you know, tons of pillows, tons of blankets, like nobody, we're not saying that that's not, that's not what I'm advocating for. So, um, you know, how can we discredit the way in which humans have slept forever? Um, and like chalk it up to survivorship bias. Um, I think that there's risks associated with a lot of a lot of things that we do. Um, and another thing that I find interesting is sometimes we do um, because in the United States, we have very poor data on like bed sharing and um, unfortunately infant loss. Um, and often if there was a bed sharing scenario, it won't be um, like qualified as SIDS at all. It would be a sudden unexpected infant death, which mm -hmm. 
one of the things I hope to see more of in the future is more research in that field, because I wonder, you know, again, if your kid is a little bit more high needs or what have you, they could maybe have something medically wrong that is why they're seeking the closeness and could be why they may have incidentally passed away while being in the bed. Um, but that's something, again, uh, There's so you know, we need more data on. These are just my speculations. Yeah, so these are just my speculations. A but a lot of these SIDS-related or the sudden infant um, deaths that, that are being reported, they all get clumped into being related to bed sharing, where often there are other factors. It wasn't the bed sharing in and of itself that was necessarily the problem. It could have been all these other factors, the wrong types of sleep services, a lot of things that aren't mm. educated, or it could be, you know, illness, um, you know, different factors that relate to the child's wellness and health. Yeah. Um, and again, like I, I'm not like pro everybody should be bed sharing. I am just pro everybody should be educated on it because um, you never know when you're going to be absolutely exhausted and having to tend to your baby at night. Um, so highly recommend if you are here listening, um, you can check out, there's loads of uh, free resources. Um, you can find um, like the United Kingdom, there's uh, Basis online, there's uh, Lullaby Trust in Canada, mm. health.gov, like literally you can just find it there. Um, we have some, a couple of resources here, but UNICEF um, is also another place where you can find uh, really reliable resource, resources on that type of topic without me having to go too much further in, uh, on sure. that. <laughs> yeah, so it is. It's just this idea of, you know, when people have certain experiences, um, even with, you know, crib, you know, training and sleep training and some of mm -hmm. these experiences is, is that idea of, well, I survived. And I, I get this all the time, right. you know, I was spanked and I was fine. I survived, and it's like, right. well, are you? <laughs> yeah, I know, right. I'd like to see that, that psych assessment. <laughs> and that, and that's like, another. How much money do you make? How, how, what kind of relationships do you have with your, your family members? How right. Yeah, right. Can, yeah. It's a very complicated. So it's, it's important to acknowledge that people's, uh, personal experiences and having made it through doesn't necessarily reflect the overall uh, societal impact and the overall long-term impact on children. Mm -hmm. And the, frankly, the, the, the problem is we don't always have enough information on that because we're not asking those questions. We're not even, right. we're not even looking into it. And it's really right. important for us to be, have some discernment with regards to that instead of just assuming, okay, because this worked for a family, um, again, I, I think I've, I talked to you before, before we started on this, the idea that um, even personality disorders, a lot of people don't get diagnosed with, you know, we're not really seeing the, the, uh, the breakdown of these disorders always impacting people until mm -hmm. later in life. They're able to survive mm -hmm. in their 20s, you know, their teens and their 20s. They've got the support system of other people. Their parents are able to pull you bail them out of jail. They're, you know, mm -hmm. they've got um, drinking too much, you know, and partying mm -hmm. is socially mm -hmm. acceptable in college. Like there are a lot of behaviors. Spending too much, you know, they can again get bailed out by different family members and friends. And so a lot of these, um, uh, inappropriate behaviors that manifested and started at a very early age also don't really, um, you know, come to a head until they're in their 30s and their 40s. And mm -hmm. then at that point, you know, as a society, we just label, label them as broken. And oh, well, we yeah. just, they're, they're an exception to the rule. Something happened. We don't know what happened to that yeah. person. And if we trace some of those things back, we there there was something that happened to them. They weren't born that way. Um, right. And so acknowledging that we've got to really start looking at the root of the problem and start acknowledging yeah. that some of these um, early years are really important. And, and that leads me to um, what you were beginning to talk about with regards to ACEs and how yeah. that applies to early childhood. Can you explain to us what ACEs are? Absolutely. So ACEs are adverse childhood experiences. Um, and these are uh, potentially traumatic experiences that occur before our 18th birthday. There's three main types of ACEs. So they're abuse that could be physical, emotional, or sexual, um, neglect, physical or emotional. And then there's household dysfunction is the last uh, category, which is uh, mental illness, incarceration, substance use, um, divorce and uh, witnessing violence. 
in the mm. home. So that is like a just kind of like another part. Yeah. Just witnessing, um, yeah. abuse. Um, yeah. so that is something I'm really passionate about because, um, I've had the misfortune of having a quite high a score and it really impacted, it has impacted everything in my life. Right. Um, to the extent we probably won't know until the end of my lifetime, right? Um, because there are a lot of data that show um, it's something like, uh, so there's two out of three Americans have at least one adverse childhood experience, oh. but um, each adverse childhood experience that, that you have has the potential to um, like kind of multiply the adverse effects that it can have on your lifetime health. And this could be um, physical health, um, so as some, some of the things that I had mentioned earlier, mental health, um, social um, health. So that would be, you know, all of your interpersonal relationships um, that also bleeds into finances and your econ uh, economic stability. Because, um, again, if you're having all of these other challenges, it's hard to keep a job. It can be or it can cause issues with um, employment. Um, it can also lead you to uh fall back into the cycle of all of these things I just mentioned, you could end up perpetuating these, um, these um, experiences, because that is all you knew. Um, and it's not your fault. Um, and I'm really passionate about it doesn't have to be a determinant. So um, one of the things I really worked on oh, very much so was social determinants of health, but I like so social drivers of health a little bit better, because it, 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 I don't like the idea that like they define you in terms of like, okay, so you're destined to this, like, you know, because you have an ACE score of eight, you are determined, you know, it's de definitive that you are going to have this, you know, outcome, right? There are many different ways that we can alleviate and lessen the impact of ACEs. Again, going back to like, if we freaking care about people in society and alleviate like financial stressors, increase access to different supports, we will start to reduce the number of people who are perpetuating the cycles of abuse um, so and perpetuating a adverse childhood experiences, which then makes a healthier society. There will be fewer instances of substance use, you know, incarceration, um, you know, neglect, abuse, like all of these things that... Um, really follow you throughout a lifetime it just um you kind of stop the problem yeah. and it's tracks with like it, i'm constantly talking about generational tra trauma and i yeah, was thinking even just from a yeah. i call it an interrupt when i'm talking to clients yeah. about it interrupt it, it when they're having a moment for example that is a repetitive thing from their past but you're talking about like even from a from a a more global perspective from a societal perspective yeah. we can create these interrupts that actually prevent that problem mm -hmm. from continuing on to the next generation by bringing awareness to it and creating these ways of compensating and supporting individuals who may have had this experience if yeah. it would take six life you know if their trajectory right. would be to have 20 years taken off their life there might be things that could come in and interrupt that dysfunction right. in a way. Right. That's fascinating. I mean, absolutely. I mean, um, wow. so if you, um, anyone who's listening, who is interested, um, you can go to CDC, look at violence prevention ACEs. They have a whole, um, whole ton of information on there. If you're just curious about the kind of academic side of things. However, if you're a person who you feel like you've had some of these um, adverse childhood experiences yourself, there's a site called numberstory.org that hmm. um, is incredible. Um, it's a very um, easy to follow and very compassionately built site that helps you become aware of and figure out maybe how to start grappling with finding out, uh, because I feel like some people don't really under realize that they've had adverse childhood experiences. Um, and you when you do you find know. out it is, yeah, it's, um, it can be really jarring and it can be really emotional. It can be um, kind of send you back into like a really challenging place. So I just want you to know, like, if you start going through this stuff, like, you know, having some support would be great. Like, you know, ensuring you have maybe like a support person available, um, you know, whether it be a spouse or a really good friend uh, or, you know, someone who is close in your life. Um, and then, you know, again, if you have like the financial means to be able to seek out 
professional support. I always advocate for that because that is amazing. I just know that some people don't either have the money or sometimes there's a lot of stigma. So they might need to work through things before they decide to hop in. But I, I really love that site. And I, I can never, cannot um, speak even, you know, I, I can't sing my graces about that site um, <laughs> anymore that I yes. you know am right now because it just, it's just, it's, sure. it's, yeah, it's just a really amazing resource that I think that everyone should check out. Um, because again, um, as much as I truly deeply believe in all of these societally led changes, I also worked in community health improvement. And uh, one of the things I would teach is culture eats um, policy for lunch, <laughs> which is a quote from some sort of interesting. Um, oh, I, I love forget that. if it's a business book or something. I can't remember yes. exactly who I quote. But um, yes. it we need to change ourselves. There is a level of personal responsibility in all of this stuff, um, in all of this work, um, whether it be, you know, I hate saying self-healing, but I feel like that's the word or kind of language that lands with people because there is like a little bit of, you need to reflect self-reflection, um, you know, try to have some, you know, figure out some coping mechanisms. If you can't figure it out yourself, like please get help. Um, you know, you need to rely on other people. Like that's another huge thing. You need to rely on other people and you need to also understand that you are not your, you are not your adverse, um, you know, experiences. You are not that you are more than that. And you can move through that and they can be empowering part of your story. Um, and then when we, when we all have this collective humanity and can sit with and reflect on some of these issues and challenges that we face imagine the things that we would be open to legislating you know what i mean <laughs> the, yes. so that's where it's it's like what comes first the chicken or the egg kind of situation um that's why i talk about it all <laughs> yes because it all matters you know yeah you think it, about things from a global standpoint but also from an individual standpoint and there is that even you know here you are an epidemiologist but the what is it the patient zero there's always that patient yeah. zero also and that yeah. trickles out effect even from psych yeah. from the aspect of psychological issues and social issues um there's a patient zero um mm -hmm. for that and we can if we can treat that patient zero, then the trickle down effect is null and void that we're able to stop that problem from disseminating into the entire population. And so kind of recognizing that, you know, fr from that, that, that's individualistic kind of that one person right. place, but also that, that collectivistic view of the, the greater impact when we, when we again, maintain humanity um yeah. and value everyone's humanity mm -hmm. and so oh my gosh well i could go for another hour <laughs> i could you, do but i know neither of us have that kind of time yeah. <laughs> as moms. Um, but candace thank you so much this has been such a just a rich conversation um i know it's just the beginning of many and i just <laughs> hope you continue doing the work that you do thank you for being on this show and for any of you who want to follow candace on instagram you can find her at candace st john mph uh, reach out to her through her website candace st john.com and um, you also have a blog with more details around early childhood questions um, that mm -hmm. anyone in our audience might have. And um, what I love, you can dig this up too from your website. You literally created a Google <laughs> spreadsheet with a list of evidence based. I was like, this is my woman. <laughs> speak my language. Put it on, yeah. put it on a spreadsheet. Um, some of the sources regarding yeah. the points that you've made in this episode. Yeah. Um, so that our audience doesn't have to do the digging themselves. You've done no, the research, yeah. you've read through this stuff, you've listed it out and said, hey, you know, read it, read it yourself, do your own critical yeah. thinking. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it's not just anecdotal opinions that you're spouting out. These, you've, you've really um, researched this quite a bit. And personally, guys, if you are getting information from even doctors and therapists who are not citing their sources. Um, <laughs> it's okay to question them. Take it with yeah. a grain of salt. Um, that includes me. Um, and, and, and again, even, even research is flawed. And so it's, mm -hmm. it's important to constantly question even the research. Um, specialists make mistakes. Um, mm -hmm. we get lazy, we get lax, we get told stories that, that seem so credible and, and we begin to, to disseminate this information that isn't really backed up by the, 
by the research. And so mm -hmm. do your own work. Um, and uh, you also offer one-on-one -on -one consultations to specialists out there. Uh, you're constantly working in the communities to provide more public health information. I'm just so grateful for that. So thank you, Candice, for thank speaking to us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank yes. you. I really appreciate it. I, you know, it was great chatting with you and hopefully we'll chat again soon. <laughs> uh, yes, I hope so too. We were gonna, we'll have to do a follow-up on this. So for you guys, I'm Lindsay Burke again. You can follow me at Lift Therapy. Thank you all for listening and connecting with us and um, we will be in touch. I hope that episode was helpful. Hey, listen, if you want to share your singlehood journey, if you've gone somewhere, come back. If you have revelations and wisdom, please share your story. It's going to help other people. Nothing makes us feel more connected than hearing other people's stories. So just send me the audio of your story and you can just record it directly from your phone and email it to theangrytherapist at gmail.com. Also, if you want our Single on Purpose newsletter, go to singleonpurpose.life. That's singleonpurpose.life. You will get tools and articles and other people's stories and also uh, Zoom links to private gathers. So if you want to join our community, go to singleonpurpose.life. Thank you for listening. Be well. We hope you tell a friend. Hey, before you go, I want to invite you to the Single on Purpose private community online. It's off of social media. No ads, no algorithms. We got forums. We got live groups. We got webinars and we have social hangs. We also have offline in-person hangs happening soon. So check us out. Go to singleonpurpose.life. That's singleonpurpose.life. And I will see you inside.